Good evening, listeners. It's Sunday, July 29th, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Harrison Stierl. Here at Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And on here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming in on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things that are going on here at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Marcus Weinman from the College of Veterinary Medicine. Hey, how's it going, guys? Hey, Marcus. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit about what you do in your research? Sure. Um, so I'm a second-year master's student here at OSU, and I work under Dr. Shai Braca at the Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, he is a veterinary oncologist, so our research focuses on uh, cancer in uh, canines. Uh, there are other researchers who work with other companion animals, but that's the one we focus on is uh, canines. And we study bone cancer and how that information can be used eventually to treat bone cancer in humans. Uh, the field is called comparative oncology. So this is really what our work is built on is understanding what we can about how cancer works in dogs and trying to use that insight to develop a new treatment or inform the care for both dogs and humans alike. So Tell me about bone cancer a little bit in terms of why that is specifically interesting to study and really um, if it's a very devastating disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so at least in both dogs and humans, uh, bone cancer strikes uh, disproportionately young. Uh, in dogs, larger breeds are predisposed to it, uh, but in humans you typically see, uh, you know, juveniles, children, teenagers, and young adults um, come down with osteosarcoma. And really what we're looking at for dogs is, you know, they're our companion animals. They're exposed to the same things we are. They're our, you know, furry four-legged companions. And because they unfortunately don't live as long as we do, we are able to sort of study uh, the full progression from start to finish of uh, osteosarcoma or bone cancer. And hopefully glean something important out of that. So really the big benefit with um, dogs is just uh, being able to you know, actually gain some insight on the disease, which otherwise is pretty fatal. Um, typically when people treat it in a clinic, at least for, for canines, the treatments, amputation and chemotherapy uh, with humans, they usually have a bit more leeway to actually cut out the tumor directly rather than amputate. Uh, but in both cases, treatment options are pretty limited and are often met with relapse after treatment has concluded, uh, usually in the lungs. So, um, again, it's a disease that when it strikes, it's usually pretty fatal. Uh, but again, in humans, it's more rare, but it's quite common in dogs. And so a, a pretty common model for studying a lot of disease states is a mouse model, uh, could you uh, provide some insight into why a, a dog model is more more advocated for this type of research rather than like a mouse model? Of course. Um, and usually in 
just research in general, you know, historically speaking, there's kind of been sort of a stigma around dog models, a lot of it um, in comparison to the more traditional ones, either with human or with mice slash rats mm-hmm. um, has been that, you know, why would you ever use anything else? And the advantage that a dog model has over a uh, mouse or rat is that neither of those two, a mouse or rat, develop spontaneous bone cancer. And the other aspect that makes those models quite difficult to work with for bone cancer is that uh, you're limited to trying to graft in a tumor from elsewhere, whether it's another uh, cell line, an in vitro cell line, or you know, a tumor derived from an actual patient. If you were to try to put that into a mouse or a rat, um, the actual act of doing it disrupts the actual bone environment and because of that that's a quite large confounding factor on all of the results you can never really be sure if the data that you're seeing is a consequence of one putting the actual tumor in and two whether the the mouse or the rat is able to functionally have a normal response to that tumor that you would see in other xenograft models simply because uh, again putting it actually in there just disrupts the environment where you've where you've grafted it too heavily. Mm-hmm. So, in the research that you're doing, you're not working with dogs; you're working with cell lines, right? And so, can you tell us a little bit about that process of working with the cell lines? Of course. So, with uh, cell lines, these were cancer cells that were, in fact, uh, originally derived from actual uh, canine osteosarcoma patients. I believe one. Uh, one cell line came from Michigan State that my advisor acquired and brought with him here to OSU. Uh, and then we acquired the other two, um, possibly through a cancer cell repository. But in any case, um, what makes, I guess, these cell lines advantageous to, to study it with initially is that um, the, the ease of use is pretty high. You can um, conduct experiments with them pretty freely. Uh, we do have some actual... Uh, cancer cells that were taken from patients that came through the uh, small animal hospital at Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, we do have those sort of stored away for later analysis. So that definitely is a component of our research, but um, we usually see one osteosarcoma patient every couple weeks. So um, that sort of puts a, a damper on trying to you know, consistently experiment and gather data and things like that. So having the presence of ever-expanding, constantly growing cell lines makes uh, study design and experimentation a lot easier. Hmm. And so with, because there hasn't really been uh, seemingly a, a good model uh, previ- prior to the research you're doing, and this is such a hard striking, fast uh, type of cancer that has some pretty large implications for negative side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your part in kind of getting this model established and what are some of the things that you're looking for? So what my current project, my thesis project is focusing on specifically is how osteosarcoma develops resistance to the typical chemotherapy drugs that are being used to treat it. Mm -hmm. And usually those are uh, platinum based drugs, uh, carboplatin, cisplatin, and a couple of other ones are also approved for animal use. Uh, But the two that I mentioned by name are also used in human treatment. And quite often, again, as I mentioned before, relapse is uh, a frequent occurrence with canine osteosarcoma patients. So we want to sort of examine those molecular mechanisms of how this phenomenon of 
chemotherapy resistance is developing and ultimately try and hone in on either one or hopefully more than one uh, possible targets for intervention, whether that be with existing drugs or with a new therapy. And so uh, just just in case somebody who's listening doesn't understand or doesn't know, um, exactly what is so important about understanding how resistance occurs or, or um, let's see, um, what exactly is chemotherapy resistance and why is it so important to understand why it's happening? Well, that's a great question. Uh, chemotherapy resistance can happen in a multitude of ways. Um, essentially what it entails realistically, whether it's for a canine or a human patient, is that the typical standard of care has failed to work because cancer cells have found a way to adapt to the presence of that drug on a, on a molecular level. Sometimes they are able to get rid of it or they're able to make it uh, less aggressive towards the cancer or they're uh, you know, physically shielded from, um, from the actual you know, medicine itself. Uh, there's often uh, physical spatial limitations to treatment that way. So chemotherapy resistance is this just multifactorial, just combination of uh, strategies that tumor cells are um, able to sort of use and adapt. And by virtue of treating with chemotherapy, you're selecting for the ones that are able to adapt and survive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's ultimately a factor that clinicians need to account for when uh, they're treating osteosarcomas that uh, relapse is likely to occur. So you know, what can we do at this point to either prevent that resistance from being built in the first place or when it inevitably comes back, you know, is there something else that we can do to, to strike back at the cancer again? Mm -hmm. So the research that you've been doing is, has consisted of developing cell lines. Correct. And so that was quite um, a laborious process, it sounds like. Can you tell us a little about how that process, of, um, how that went for you. Yeah, so I mean, definitely, as you mentioned, it was uh, quite a laborious task. It took me roughly nine months. Uh, probably I started uh, working on this project last September, and then I believe I finished developing these cell lines in uh, March or April of this year. So uh, it took a considerable amount of time. But uh, essentially, I was trying to take some pre-existing uh, osteosarcoma cell lines, which had uh, various degrees of sensitivity to chemotherapy. You know, some were uh, completely resistant from the start and others were uh, quite sensitive. And my job or my role essentially was to uh, essentially titrate up a dose of chemotherapy and gradually increase uh, the amount of chemotherapy that are present um, in the, you know, the fluid that these cells basically sit in. Um, and essentially let them grow on it for a couple of days and repeat that process that's occurring in an actual patient, you know, selecting for the ones that can survive and then you know, expanding them, growing them more, and then rinsing and repeating that process with uh, the next uh, increase of chemotherapy uh, dosage. So that it was a very sort of iterative, repetitive, and <laughs> at times boring process, but ultimately um, it it's really necessary to understand the full spectrum of you know, as the dosage ramps up to what you would see in an actual patient, you know, actual clinical dosages. How are these cells adapting? What are they doing? And that's really what made it worth it in the end for me was having the ability to look at a wide spectrum of resistance to chemotherapy and uh, the varying strategies used to get there. Yeah, it seems like there would be something very interesting to learn about really that difference in 
the chemo sensitivity from the outset, really the potential different targets between those cell lines. Precisely. And so, so now, go ahead. So how do you how do you study this? What sort of techniques do you use in the lab to ascertain um, which targets might be potentially targetable? I guess. Um, so really. You know, at least in uh, Dr. Baraka's lab, we have a, an access to a wide array of different techniques. Um, right now, uh, we're frequent collaborators with the Oregon State Mass Spectrometry Corps over in uh, Agricultural Life Sciences, or ALS, uh, with uh, Dr. Claudia Meyer and then um, Dr. Lai Ping Yang, who uh, essentially runs the machines on a day-to-day -day basis. But basically that in terms of trying to identify um, strategies and potential drug targets and um, other you know, molecules of interest uh, mass spectrometry has, I think, been one of our more invaluable tools to uh, take that sort of shotgun-style discovery approach and figure out, you know, we have all these samples from all these different uh, cell lines that are resistant to chemotherapy. You know, what can we pick out that either is common between all of them or uh, something that starts appearing as the dose of chemotherapy drug increases? Uh, so mass spectrometry really has been, I think, the most important tool. But in general, it's just the ability to... Uh, manipulate these cells freely in cell culture that ultimately I mean, won't help me develop them. But if we're going to later on sort of investigate some of these you know, potential proteins or targets that pop up, uh, you know, we'll need the ability to knock them out using tools like CRISPR, uh, you know, the CRISPR-Cas9 system and things like that. So really in cell culture makes it all possible. Mass spectrometry kind of shows us where to go and points us in the right direction. And then from there, it's just a matter of where we're heading and what tools we need. And you're in the stage where you're collecting the data about the cells right now. Correct. Yeah. So we uh, we've already run uh, quite a few samples through uh, the mass spectrometer once or twice, and then we have a lot more that uh, we're going to rerun just to validate some of the results we saw before. Uh, and we do have a couple areas of interest, but again, we just want to you know, rerun everything and be sure that the data we're seeing is actually genuine. Absolutely. And so. Is that going to be really the the major next step is now that you have these uh, cell lines established, will it be looking to see what pathways, what proteins are upregulated or downregulated and pursuing those further and then potentially looking for like a therapeutic target for treatment potentially? Is that kind of kind of the end goal maybe? Yeah, I, mean, I think that's really like the big picture goal. Mm -hmm. um, whether we get there or not is simply just a, a matter of how long everything takes, of course. But um, something we're we're looking to incorporate um, in sort of in the same vein of you know, what are we actually going to do as far as developing uh, you know a treatment or a therapy for something that we found is uh, and we're gonna um, dig out all of those uh, patient samples that we've got and we're gonna compare do sort of an in vitro in vivo comparison uh, within a canine model and see you know with these cell lines that we've made and what we've done, you know, how similar is this to a tumor that just came from an actual patient, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of weeks ago and how similar is this sort of recreation of this phenomenon uh, in a laboratory to an actual living being. And so that ultimately I think is going to be the biggest dictator of where we go and how similar things are. If there are, you know, individual proteins or you know, molecules in a particular pathway of biology that are common between both our in vitro cell lines and our actual patient samples. That's, I think, ultimately what we're going to laser focus in on and um, experiment with in the future. 
It sounds like this is pretty uncharted territory then in terms of looking for treatments for bone cancer since there isn't a whole lot out there. Um, so a long-term view of this sort of research, is there like a timeline from maybe the, the basic research setting to actually getting it into a clinical setting? Is there, what does that timeline look like? Oh, that, that's the million dollar question right okay. there. <laughs> um, really, it, it, it's kind of subject to the nature of every project. Um, and depending on, again, you know, what we decide to focus on, that could alter the timeline quite significantly. But you know, generally speaking for a project like this, I mean, we're looking at maybe a solid two to three years of just you know, basic science research and all of that discovery-driven uh, you know, hypothesis testing and all of that. But after that, um, really that's a kind of a more political matter in terms of just you know, funding, money, access. Uh, I know the Carlson College of Veterinary Medicine is actually engaging in a couple pretty awesome clinical trials right now for um, a wide variety of you know, crazy things you wouldn't normally think of in terms of cancer treatment. Uh, so they have a lot of programs set up to sort of start accommodating some of these new research discoveries and try and get that translational aspect really into it. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you know, one, we're looking for something that could be used in a clinic. Um, and two, you know, my advisor is an actual practicing veterinary oncologist. So he's you know, got an eye out for something that he can either use to you know, go about his day to day practice better, actually help patients you know, inform his colleagues about the standard of care or what certain treatments are going to do and things like that. So there's kind of a, a, a dichotomy. There's sort of this immediate impact that could be felt you know, when everything kind of comes down the pipeline, but then down the road, there are you know, avenues and infrastructure in place to sort of get these things really to you know, clinical testing and trials. Absolutely. So I want to take a step back and talk again just about the complexity of cancer cells and just inherently how difficult they are to study. But you had mentioned um, a specific feature of tumor cells called exosomes, and those are really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. So exosomes, I think, really the best analogy that I have for these. They're kind of like a package, you know. If I think Prime Day was just a couple of weeks ago, so if if you want to imagine, you know, an Amazon package kind of arriving at your doorstep, you know, if you have a bunch of stuff on your order, obviously it'll all be kind of crammed in there. And that's really what exosomes are in terms of an actual biological feature. They're uh, derived from an actual cell membrane. So they're just kind of these little vesicles or um, just kind of blobs, I guess, for lack of a better term. They're kind of just amorphous, but they have quite a bit of contents in them. Uh, they have anything from DNA to proteins to a variety of RNAs. They kind of have you know, one of every important you know, molecule class, uh, plus some of the little bits and pieces in terms of like microRNAs or non-coding RNAs and things like that. And the really unique feature about these is that these little packages can be made by both cancer cells and normal cells and transferred back and forth in every combination. So a lot of what we're kind of honing in on in terms of chemotherapy resistance is how some of these cells can sort of effectually communicate with each other through use of these little uh, biological packages called exosomes. Hmm. And so that's uh, going back into our uh, mass spectrometry analysis is, you know, are some of these things that are either upregulated or downregulated or changed as a consequence of being resistant to chemotherapy, are these being sort of spread around to other cancer cells that might otherwise be sensitive to chemotherapy and help them develop resistance? Hmm. So this sounds pretty novel. 
actually. That yeah, area. exosomes are a pretty heavily understudied area of biology in general. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of become a, a trendy thing. I know when I was still here in uh, this lab, when I graduated in 2015 for my undergraduate, I, I had never heard of it and neither had my advisor, but then I came back here in September and that was suddenly everything we did. <laughs> so it, it's just one of those things that's kind of at least taken our laboratory by storm. And I think a lot of other uh, labs, both you know, in cancer and outside of cancer are taking a, a long, hard look because they're finding quite a lot of valuable information in regards to what exosomes yield. Yeah, so a little compartment of a soup of cellular ingredients. Exactly. Basically. Okay, that's pretty cool. So looking forward, you're, you're a master's student, so you're going to be finishing up in the next year or two. Correct. Potentially. What's next for you after that? Uh, so the plan, as I've envisioned it at least, is uh, medical school. I've got my you know, my applications in and everything for this cycle. So um, in the meantime, obviously, like you said, I'll be working on you know, finishing uh, my research project and uh, gathering some more data and then doing some downstream analysis of that. But uh, that should definitely take me through the 2018-2019 uh, academic mm -hmm. year. Uh, but then from there, you know, there's kind of a, a variety of paths for me. Um, I'm considering a PhD program uh, if med school applications don't work out, which is obviously something that I have to account for. But, you know, I, I just love research so much that even if um, even if I did get accepted to you know, an MD, a clinical program, I would still uh, strive to sort of incorporate research into my career. And that's what getting this master's degree has really shown me is that uh, a lot of what we do in research is, you know, um, transferable into the clinic. And that can at the end of the day, that can make a world of difference for a patient. So, uh, yeah, for me, those are sort of my two forks in the road. And uh, which one I take is not necessarily in my control, but <laughs> we'll, we'll find out what happens soon enough. Sure. And so you said research is, is something that you really enjoy doing. Is, is this something that's always been a major interest to you? Or is there sort of a catalyst moment that like really had you set on continuing further in research? Yeah, I know uh, there are, I think, two major sort of influences on me in terms of um, career path. Uh, the, I guess in chronological order, uh, this is back during my senior year of high school. Uh, I had a pretty awesome uh, AP chemistry teacher named Mr. Ryan. And he was just one of those teachers who really could bring out sort of your, your interest and your passion for, for science and uh, not necessarily for chemistry specifically, but he just was one of those people who could really sort of capture that and work with that and sort of bring that out within you. And so I think academically speaking, that was something that got me interested in research in the first place was he just kind of showed me the world for lack of a better term of what science was and what it had to offer. But really, I think the, the biggest impetus was uh, also during my senior year of high school when my older brother, he had um, suddenly come down with um, I guess an unknown illness at the time, but turned out to be an autoimmune disease. And that at the time, you know, we thought we were going to lose him because he spent a solid month in the ICU, um, you know, really waiting on physicians to uh, you know, get him the treatment he needed and diagnose him properly, which they thankfully did. But for me, um, that whole process was sort of achieved by the intervention of you know, one specific physician who uh, joined his case sort of later on in the process. So uh, for me, watching my older brother sort of you know, have his condition you know, reversed and just come back out of it, uh, all due to drugs that were products of research, 
that for me, I think was a pretty big uh, motivator that you know, someone I know personally is you know, the beneficiary of that. And uh, you know, research discoveries allow him to you know, stay alive and thrive and not have his disease uh, relapse. And he's been in remission for quite a while. Uh, so for me, that was, I think, the, the biggest um, you know, factor that ignited that flame mm -hmm. uh, that was originally sort of lit by my AP chemistry teacher was that, you know, if it helped my family, I want to be able to you know, dedicate my life and my career to hopefully finding something that could help someone else. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, so looking forward, potentially, was there a specific field of medicine that you're excited to study potentially? Uh, I mean, I think I've, uh, I've caught the oncology bug. <laughs> I mean, w working with it for so long, I can't really envision anything else, but you know, there's always the possibility that that would change in the future. But at least as I see it now, oncology is absolutely the field I want to be working in. And I think it's important for um, you know, people in oncology, one, to sort of have that ability to incorporate new research and new therapies and things like that, because cancer is such an amazingly complex disease. And that's something that we kind of need you know, hardworking clinicians who are knowledgeable in that regard to start getting some of these things just out of, out of the laboratory and into the clinic. Uh, but again, on the other hand, you know, uh, having cancer or some sort of uh, you know, hematological illness, you know, that's something that can be pretty serious. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. at least sort of going through what uh, you know, my family went through with my older brother, and I've kind of understood that not only do you want a knowledgeable physician, but you want a compassionate one too. And so that's also what draws me into oncology is being able to not only help the patient, but to be there when they and their families really need you to be there. And you said you really enjoyed um, kind of the the teaching aspect, which, and really no matter which pathway you, path you take, you can end up having a pretty large role in being able to teach and work with people in, in either the clinic or in the lab setting. So, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, you. I mean, we, we talked about this in our little pre-interview and it's something yeah, that, yeah. that you really said you really enjoyed doing and wanted to kind of uh, establish a little better. Yeah, well, and, and I think teaching is pretty universal and even outside of science, you know, there's always people who know more than you. And, you know, I think that's what makes, um, it's just the whole institution of academia. What mm -hmm. it is, is that you know, people are really passing on that knowledge that they spent their entire career studying. And so I think sort of trying to translate that into you know, a clinical position, you know, you're, you're teaching patients every day how to take care of themselves and sure. what they need to do and you know, how their family can be there and support them through whatever they may be dealing with cancer or otherwise. You know, and then on the research side of that coin, uh, you know, teaching and mentorship is really a big factor in helping you know new up and coming scientists, sort of like us, um, sort of get our feet wet and sort of get involved mm -hmm. in either a particular area of research or in a laboratory. You know, I think a lot of scientists, both new and old, really haven't been weren't able to get to where they are today without the mentorship or the guidance of someone else. And so I think that's an important aspect of my career that I want to incorporate, whether it's clinical or research is that, you know, just helping other people figure it all out. And life is just a crazy complex mixture of stuff. So yeah. that teaching is quite important. Yeah. It's, it's good to learn how to stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Exactly. Being able to take what has been done previous before you and really learn from that. Uh, so we have a couple of, uh, traditions that we do here on the show. And the first one that I'll ask you now is to give a piece of advice that could be for anybody, your a previous self for you, maybe, uh, 
an undergraduate who's potentially interested in research or it can really be anything that's in your court. So what would be a piece of advice that you would give and who is it to? So I would probably give this piece of advice just generally to um, anyone who's considering graduate school, medical school, even you know, veterinary school. Um, it's just knowing uh, a lot of vets by, you know, by virtue of working at the uh, CCVM here. Just in general, sort of these these undertakings in life are pretty long journeys. It's not necessarily all about destination. It's just all about what you're doing in the meantime as you work long and hard on some of these degrees, whether it's, again, you know, a bachelor's degree. If you're just getting into a research lab, now that's a pretty big undertaking too. That takes quite a long time to uh, get a project started, done. Uh, really, I think the piece of advice would just be keep at it. Just keep your head down. Keep working hard. Because, um, again, life will, will take you where it takes you. And it's just all about trying to work hard and get yourself through it as much as you can. You know, there will be difficult times. There will be enjoyable times. But as long as you're working hard throughout all of it, you know, you'll get to where you need to go. Um, and that, I think, is something that a lot of people I know have really sort of struggled with as they kind of have fallen off the wagon a little bit. But mm -hmm. as soon as they just worked hard and... Know, sort of focused on what they needed to focus on and got it done, you know, things started to get better. So just keep on working, keep it up. Um, and everyone's proud of you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great advice to remember, you know, because the time is going to pass anyway, you know, so might yeah. as well be doing it. Might as well be productive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Bettering your situation. Exactly. Um, before we conclude our interview, you have a really interesting connection to OSU that we, uh, discovered and, um, Kind of, you have a lot of uh, a deep connection, really, to OSU. Can you tell us about that? Um, of course. Um, so, this is something I sort of um, maybe mentioned to you guys, sort of in passing in our, our pre-interview. But my grandfather, Richard Wyman, was actually involved in the founding of KBVR and a lot of the uh, uh, media and communications departments here at OSU. Uh, so, if he happens to be listening, shout out to Grandpa. You rock. Hmm. Um, but then, if, um, yeah, I mean, that was really the, the biggest connection was just, yeah. uh, you know, he, and I didn't really know too much about this until uh, I really started digging. I didn't know how much work he actually did with KBVR until I looked into it. So, yeah. Such a funny coincidence. Seriously. Actually, yeah. And the other tradition we have on the show is uh, playing you out with a song of your choosing. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us what you chose and why you chose it? Uh, so I uh, chose a song by Breaking Benjamin off their newest album, Ember. Uh, I think that came out earlier this year. It's called Down. Um, and I think really the, the meaning of the song kind of aligns with the advice that I gave. It's just all about not letting the journey sort of keep you down and just keep on keeping on fighting the good fight. That's It's a good, good song, good piece of advice. Um, Thank you so much for coming on tonight, Marcus. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I appreciate thank it. Thank you. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, this was Marcus, and uh, we'll be playing you off to your choice of song, Down by Breaking Benjamin. So again, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks.